Albion. Today that word conjures impressions of a lost, utopian version of Britain. But the story of Albion, as it was originally told in the Middle Ages, is anything but beautiful. According to the early Brute Chronicle, Albion was first discovered by a group of sisters, who then propagated with the wandering devils they found there, spawning a race of giants. This was a strange land, subsequently conquered by Brutus, who gives his name to modern Britain. Madeline Smart of the University of Liverpool continues the story in this podcast, which was recorded during the series Late Summer Lectures in 2017. In this lecture, entitled Ideas of Change, Rebirth and Stagnancy, in the Albina Prologue of the Middle English Prose Brute Chronicle, I shall be looking at how an exploration of these concepts in the Albina Prologue provides insight into the depiction of the nation of Albion, its founders, and how they are proven to be unsuitable originators of the British national identity. Looking at the nations of Syria and Britain that precede and follow Albion, I shall discuss how Albion presents a change in the governmental style championed by Diocletian in Syria and reintroduced in Britain after Brutus's conquering of Albion's giants. I shall explore how the figures of Albina and her sisters deviate from the leadership pattern outlined by Diocletian in Syria, and later affirmed by Brutus, and why the sisters, unlike Brutus, waste their second chance presented to them on their arrival in Albion's new and untainted land. Foremostly, I shall argue that by looking more closely at the narrative's decision and discussion of ideas of change, rebirth and stagnancy, the Albina prologue provides an explanation for Albina. Albion's failure as a nation, other than the fact that the society is founded and comprised by transgressive women. This explanation is bound up in the brute's continual concern with nation and national identity. I will begin with an introduction of the Prose Brute Chronicle and the Albina Prologue, as an understanding of why and how the text came to be is integral to understanding the importance of change, rebirth and stagnancy in the prologue. The brute itself has undergone countless changes since its first, it first emerged, not only in its many recognised evolutions and reworkings, but it has, constantly, it has constantly been reborn as each new manuscript produced unique additions to the canon, which, though often minute, are extremely interesting, imbuing the narrative with new life in each manuscript witness. The Middle English Prose Root Chronicle details the history of Britain, beginning with its foundation by the mythological Brutist after whom it takes its name, Brute, who was the grandson of the legendary Trojan, Aeneas, and continuing to the reign of the current king. Originally written in Anglo-Norman, the favoured upper-class vernacular of Britain at the time, the Brute was then translated into Middle English and Latin, with the Middle English prose Brute Chronicle becoming one of the most popular secular works of the late Middle Ages, to quote Julia Marvin. Taken from an 8th century Latin text, the Historia Britonum, the narrative of the Trojan foundation of Britain sees the outcast Brutus arriving on an island, then named Albion, conquering the race of giants that lived there and renaming the land Brutonia, Britain, after his own name. Roughly 300 years later, in the early 12th century, Geoffrey of Monmouth relied heavily on the Historia Britonum whilst composing his text, the Historia Regum Britonniae. Geoffrey of Monmouth's narrative, written in the aftermath of the, of the Norman invasion, seemed to attempt to legitimise the position of the Anglo-Norman rulers in Britain. As France had been claiming Trojan ancestry since the 7th century or so, by reinforcing this Trojan foundation of Britain in his Historia, 
Geoffrey of Monmouth helped to unite the politically fragmented people of the new Norman Britain through their shared Trojan ancestry. Moreover, by naming the Isle Albion and populating it with a race of giants that Brutus and his Trojan companion were then obliged to depose, Geoffrey of Monmouth further justifies the Norman invasion by injecting it with the weight of classical tradition, to quote Lisa Rook. The once glorious Anglo-Saxon ancestors become monstrous, and the Norman invaders are transformed from aggressors to reinstators of the classical and legitimate line, as their conquering act becomes an echo of Brutus's own heroic founding. Surviving in 49 manuscripts, the Anglo-Norman Brute Chronicle were composed of two distinctive parts. The history of Britain from Brutus's foundation up to 1272 with the death of Henry III, and a continuation up to 1307 and the death of Edward I. These two parts formed the common text of the Anglo-Norman Brute and was the core of subsequent versions. During the second half of the 14th century, the Anglo-Norman Brute underwent two major reworkings, resulting in works known as the Anglo-Norman Short Version and the Anglo-Norman Long Version. It is during these reworkings that the Albino Prologue first appears attached to the Brute. Along with other continuations, both the 1333, during the reign of Edward III, and additions of, to the narrative, such as the prophecies of Merlin and other things like that, both reworkings contain an Albina prologue, though in different forms. The short version has, begins with the Albina in a verse form, taken from the Anglo-Norman poem De Grand Géant, the earliest known version of the narrative, and it's composed in roughly the early 1300s, accompanied by a Latin passage that links the two texts together. The Anglo-Norman long version, on the other hand, whose reworking happened sometime but not too long after the short version and occurs on a much, much larger scale, brings with the prose version, brings a prose version of the Albina narrative to the text. It's from the second group, from the Anglo-Norman long version, that the Middle English prose brute chronicle descends, with the exception of one independent Middle English translation that was undertaken by John Mandeville in 1435. Having been translated then into Middle English sometime between 1333 and 1400, the Brute Chronicle continued to be reproduced and expanded. In his 1998 work, The Development of the Middle English Chronicle, Lister Matheson notes that there have been roughly 16 types of continuation added to the text classified as a common version, as well as being an abbreviated version, an extended version, and also a series of peculiar versions. The earliest Middle English Brute versions exist in the group classified by Matheson as the common version and go from Albina's prologue through Brutus's founding up to 1333 um, during the reign of Edward III. So, why the need for the Albina prologue? The Brutus named after Brutus who founds Britain. Why do we need to know about this? Why does it need to be Albina? Until the prologue's attachment during these 14th century reworkings, Albion and its giants had existed for Brutus to conquer. But neither Geoffrey of Monmouth nor the many subsequent Latin scholars who handled the text gave an explanation for how the island came to be named Albion, nor how the race of giants came to be there. The attachment of the Albina to the Anglo-Norman brute thus served to fill the void left by Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia, presenting an alternative or even a proto-foundation myth that preludes and parallels Brutus's own foundation in Britain. An exceedingly popular tale, the Albina narrative goes something like this. A group of sisters, princesses of either Syria or Greece, are banished by their father, the king, for plotting, and if they're Assyrian, succeeding, in murdering their husbands, 
as they do not like having to submit to kings whose blood is not as noble as their own, purely because they are their husbands. Cast out in boats, the sisters eventually land on an uninhabited island, naming it Albion, after the eldest sister, Albina. Consumed by lust and for want of men, the sisters then propagate with wandering devils and spawn giant offspring. It is this race of giants that Brutus then conquers on his arrival to the island some years later. In the majority of the almost 200 extant manuscript witnesses of the prologue, those that descend from the Anglo-Norman long version, in which the sisters are Syrian, present the largest part of the manuscripts, whereas the only a handful of them, I think is about 12, um, which Matheson all categorises as peculiar manuscripts, place the sisters in Greece. These two distinct versions are known colloquially as the Syrian version and the Greek version. Although, as far as we are aware, the texts themselves cannot claim either Syrian or Greek origins. Apart from the differences in nationality, these two versions differ in a number of other ways. Whilst the Syrian version uniformly details 33 sisters, the Greek version has 30, only 29 of whom are banished. Brereton observes that in the Greek Albina, the sisters suffer a generally more violent and graphic fate. In the Greek version, the consequence for merely conspiring to murder their husbands are both figuratively and literally monstrous. Though they do not actually carry out their plot, they are exiled without rudder or provisions, suffer greatly whilst at sea, are seduced by incubi and raped by their giant offspring. The fate of the Syrian sisters is much less severe. Despite the fact that they succeed in their plot, they are exiled with victuals for half a year, are raped neither by devils who come and lay by them, satisfying their desires, nor by their giant offspring. These changes from the Greek version, which is in fact closer to the original narrative that we see in the Anglo-Norman verse source, to the Syrian version, shows us that even at this early stage, how change and rebirth are central, not only to the themes of the narrative, but to the history of the text itself, its composition and its evolution. For the remainder of this paper, it will be the manuscripts of the Syrian version that I will be primarily discussing, unless otherwise stated. Having discussed what the Albina prologue is, how it became attached to the brute, and when, I will now explore why. Other than being a fascinating tale, there are a few contemporaneous political and social factors that contributed to the popularity of the Albina and ensured it a firm place in the brute canon. Both of these factors centre upon female figures. The first is Scotta, Scotland's mythological foundress, and the second is Isabella of France, the very real Queen of England at the time of the Albina prologue's attachment to the brute and wife of Edward II. The rediscovery of the Scotta legend of Scotland in the late 13th century occurred, according to G.W.S. Barrow, in order to combat the Brutus legend and describes the exiled daughter of an Egyptian pharaoh, Scotta, serving for a place to establish a new nation and settling in Scotland. Like Albina, Scotta originates from the east and travels west to escape subjugation. Yet, unlike Albina, Scotta is accompanied by her husband, the Greek prince Gathelos, and they found the land and people together associating Scotland both with Greece and also Egypt. Due to continued conflict with Scotland throughout Edward III's reign, the desire to establish a female founder to rival that of the Scots may well have encouraged the cultivation of the Albina myth, whilst attempting to fortify a sense of national identity, much like Geoffrey of Monmouth tried to do when composing his Historia Regum Britanniae. And yet, Albina and her sisters are not the ancestors of Britain, as Scotta is of the Scots 
The legacy Albina leaves behind in Albion is destroyed by Brutus on his conquering. Due to the fact that Brutus' conquering of Albion and its giants predates the Albina prologue, the end of Albion is inevitable. But why is it that Albina's Albion has to be fundamentally flawed? To justify Brutus's action and further glorify the foundation of Britain, he only has to kill the giants, already a monstrous and unsympathetic race, and allow the nation to be reborn. Why could not the giants have conquered Albina's dynasty as Brutus conquers theirs, and thus seek to return the nation to an earlier ideal? Why do Albina and her sisters have to be bad? Julia Marvin argues that one reason may be to intentionally demonise Britain's queen at the time with a prologue attachment, Isabella of France, who, like Albina, had robbed her husband of his title, though not of his life, roughly ten years before. The Middle English Prose Brute Chronicle, in fact, contains an account of Edward III's accession to the throne in 1327 and preceding events towards the end of its text. After being exiled by his father, Edward II, in 1325, and along with his mother, Isabella of France, the 14-year-old prince returns to England and deposes his father, becoming Edward III. Marvin argues that having occurred almost concurrently with the Albina Prologue's attachment to the Brute, the circumstances of Edward III's accession to the throne and the role that Isabel played in it would therefore have had a profound effect on the development of the prose Albina prologue. Though Marvin is quick to admit that the Albina prologue is not a veiled representation of allegory of the fall of Edward II, the likeness between the two female figures is undeniable. Both Isabella and Albina are of royal birth, both are married to kings of another land who are beneath their own social status and both are prepared to kill their husbands and lords in pursuit of their own perceived rights. Yet the parallels between Albina and Isabella's crimes against their husband can conversely be seen to be the writer's attempt to make the Albina prologue simply appear more factual and historically viable, bringing into it dialistic conformity with the main text of the brute. Not only then did its likeness to the culminating events of the Brute make the Albina prologue resonate more in the mind of its readers, but also, in turn, added historical authenticity and authority to what began as a fantastical romance. With this in mind, the inclusion of the Albina prologue could also be seen not only as rivalling the Scotter myth, but mocking it, and the feasibility of the female founder. By presenting a transgressive and arguably dangerous female figure that in many ways resembles Scotter, and then having her overthrown by Brutus, the Brute asserts the physical military power of its patriarchal male-founded nation over the therefore matriarchal and female-founded Scotland. Bearing in mind Britain's relationship with Scotland at the time, as well as how the text has been arguably used as British propaganda throughout its history, it is not unfeasible that Albina and her sisters were made as bad as possible to both warn against female rulers in response to Albina uh, as a response to Isabel, but also to snub the Scottish and their foundress, Scotta. Turning then to the narrative itself, having discussed the formation of the Brute and its Albina prologue, it would be an understatement to say that the they are texts preoccupied with ancestry and national identity. Popularised at times of national upheaval, it is inevitable that the prologue is imbued with a fear of political chaos and change, and the loss of strong and established rule. This desire for stability is maintained in the text's time of chaos through the remembrance and cultivation of a sense of national identity and celebrated heritage. Yet despite the text's aversion to chaos, change in the narrative is not always negative. 
When discussed along ideas of rebirth and stagnancy, change plays a much more nuanced role in the Albina narrative and can help us to understand that the prologue is more than just a warning against transgressive women. In the Albina, we are presented with three nations and three peoples, and the march changes between them. The nation that Albina and her sisters found is markedly different to the Syrian nation preceding it and the British nation that follows. The most prominent change visible is the replacement of the patriarchal society in Syria and its male ruler, Diocletian, with the matriarchal society of Albion and its female ruler and founders. The reversal back to the patriarchal dominance of Brutus's conquest of Albion brings the stark differences between the two gendered societies into great, even greater relief. The text betweens with the high-functioning patriarchal nation of Syria, ruled by Diocletian, who is presented as an exemplar of leadership and governance. The brute begins. In the noble land of Syria, there was a noble king and a mighty, and a man of great renown that men called Diocletian, that well and worthily him governed and ruled through his noble chivalry, so that he conquered all the lands about him, so almost all the kings of the world to him were intondent. There is little, if any, variation in the prologue's many manuscript witnesses in these opening lines, the most marked being in London Society of Antiquaries Manuscript 93, which I will henceforth call Sal, and Yale University Beinecke uh, Manuscript 494, which have slight differences, but never falter in presenting Diocletian as a paragon of leadership. Sal calls Diocletian a worthy lord of name, attributing his ability to conquer to his might and great power, causing the kings about him to be also at his will. Meanwhile, Beinecke adds to his good name that he is a strong man and a mighty of body. Both manuscripts support and enhance the importance of Diocletian's betrayal as a strong and stable king, who uses his noble chivalry to rule and govern a successful kingdom. Diocletian's mean of successful governance is visible throughout the time the prologue spends in Syria through his conquering and dominance over almost all the kings of the world, through his legislation, social and political hierarchies, law enforcement, and his care in protecting and continuing his bloodline through marriage and producing heirs. Whilst these societal patterns can be seen in the Britain later established by Brutus, the Albion preceding it has changed so significantly that it can no longer be recognised or function as a civilised nation. Much like Diocletian Syria, Brutus's Britain is founded on conquest and military dominance. After a long voyage of, at sea, via Gascony, Brutus and his people arrive at Totnes, and there, fought in with the giants and quelled them every each one, but one giant that was master of them all that men called Gog Magog. Gog Magog is then defeated by Brutus's cousin Corin in a wrestling match. Brutus commemorates Corin's victory by giving him that part of the country and naming it after his name, Corinwall, before going forth and naming the rest of the land Britain after his own name. As Diocletian uses his strength to overpower neighbouring kings to submission, so Brutus uses military, and in Corin's case, physical strength, to scumfit or defeat Albion's native race. In contrast, Albina and her sisters merely arrive on the land and claim it as their own because it is an empty and barren wasteland. And they sailed so long in the sea till at last they come and arrived at an eel that was all wilderness, and when Dame Albine was come to the land and all her sisters, this Albine went first out of the ship 
and said to her other sisters, For as much, quoth she, as I am the eldest of this company, and first that the land hath taken, and for as much as my name is Albion, I will that this land be called Albion, after my own name. There is no vanquishing, no trial or obstacle to overcome. In her article on the Grand Gion, Leslie Johnson highlights the importance of action in Brutus's founding of Britain, and that the land, inhabitants and language is named after him to commemorate his conquering act. Marvin also discusses the importance of action, stating that it is one thing for a band of, female, of criminal females to settle in an uninhabited country, one that Albine can claim, however briefly, by her say-so alone. But by conquering their land, just as Aeneas conquers his, Brute and his men stake their claim in deed as well as in word. They earn their place. Just as Diocletian claimed and secured his land in deed as well as in word, thus it appears to Albina's detriment that she arrived on the land first and had no one to conquer. Her foundation was too easily won, and therefore it is not as worthy to continue as Brutus's is, as she and her sisters did not have to fight for it. And yet, though admittedly not the indigenous race of the land they claim as their own, could not the killing of their husbands and ending those bloodlines be seen as the conquering of sorts? Though perhaps not the traditional conquest, their murderous acts result in them being able to claim the land of Albion, which Albina does, naming it after herself, as soon as she steps foot on its shores. The sisters are attempting to follow their father's example, but fail, because they are women, and the assertion of dominance in this way is seen as a masculine act. Though they try to assume the shape of men, they do not succeed, as they are not men, and are punished rather than celebrated for their so-called conquest, as it does not fit into the patriarchal social structure that is in place in Diocletian Syria. Another prominent change between the idealised Syria and the failing Albion is the level of administration and governmental infrastructure in operation. Diocletian Syria is depicted as a nation of formality, full of great solemnities, summonings and letters. Not only is Diocletian able to summon the many kings, admirals, princes, dukes and noble chivalry at his will through his letters, but they are also the medium through which the 33 kings complain of their wives. Important information is shared and arrangements are made through letters written, and in sealed with their seals they bear the mark and therefore the importance of kings. The importance of letters as a tool of governance is enhanced in several of the Brutes' manuscripts, in which the letters sent to and from Diocletian become letters patent, referring to a royal decree or occasionally a more contractual document. The addition of the word patent in this manuscript group suggests that one of the manuscript scribes or the scribe of a manuscript used as an exemplar for the group felt it important to insert this small piece of legal terminology adding credibility and administrative weight to Diocletian society, as it reflected contemporary modes of governance. The addition of patent also appears attached to Diocletian's letter in a single manuscript of the common version to 1377, Princeton Taylor Manuscript 3. As well as the phrase, they come into lawful age, when talking of Diocletian's plan to marry his daughters. Interestingly, in this manuscript, the words patent and to lawful, are visibly inserted superscript in the line rather than being embedded in the text, suggesting that the scribe or a contemporary hand added the words as an afterthought or amendment. 
As many of the scribes may have also been legal clerks, it is plausible that the presence of this legal language could merely be seen as a scribe supplementing the text through their knowledge of administrative jargon. Nevertheless, the effect on the depiction of Diocletian's kingdom remains. The sense of order and civil structure is heightened by these additions and make the sudden change to the primitive structure of Albion all the more startling. Albion, in contrast, is completely devoid of legal or civilised structure. The land that Albina and her sisters discover is all wilderness, populated not by people, but by animals. They are therefore forced to live in a quasi-animalistic state. Feeding on fruits and animals that they kill, the sisters live in as they best might, while still inhabiting the wild, uncivilised landscape. Their giant progeny eventually living in caves and in hills, rather than towns and cities. Yet when Brutus begins to establish Britain, he immediately creates Cornwall and founds his capital city, New Troy, as well as building Tor's castle on his travels there. Brutus, unlike Albina, continues the legacy of civil structure and legislation that he inherited from his ancestors and that, Al that Albina and her sisters failed to inherit from Diocletian. Thus, it would seem that all the changes made to the example set by Diocletian and his nation of Syria have negative results and contribute to Albion's failure to thrive. Are we then to understand that all changes the matriarchal society make to its patriarchal mould are negative? Is it simply a question of gender? Does the change from male to female ruler, patriarchal to matriarchal society, really cause the automatic failure of the prospective nation? It is true that in the prologue, we see the same behaviour enacted by different genders produce different results. The men are celebrated for their strength and dominance, the women are vilified for their transgression. Yet, there are two aspects in which the portrayal of gendered societies is not so black and white. Though perhaps not as high-functioning as Syria or Britain, the society that Albion and her sisters found in Albion is arguably a stable one. There is no infighting amongst the sisters, there is no challenge against Albina as leader, as a social hierarchy is not as complex. Rather than a court comprised of admirals, princes, dukes, barons, kings and emperors, Albion is ruled by a group of sisters whose nation is built on a model of unity and consent. Even whilst in their father's kingdom, the choices the sisters made were all consented to by all. When Albina suggests they kill their husbands, all the ladies consented thereto and granted to the council. Later on in the narrative, when Albion proposes naming Albion after her own name, again, all the sisters granted with goodwill. Even when disobeying their husbands in their own kingdom, the sisters present a united front. As while Albina is full of scorn and spite, all her other sisters bear him so evil against their lords that it was wonderful to wit. Though Albion society does not have a strict or complex political structure, with civil and legislative mechanisms, it is a unified society, and it remains stable until the time that Brutus arrives and conquers it. Though it does not follow the example given by Diocletian at the prologue's beginning, Albion does, in a way, achieve nobility, though it is admittedly short-lived, as a civilization never seems to progress beyond this initial triumph. Yet the nation does continue for a time. Albina and her sisters do succeed in securing the continuation of the society they found, unlike the civilised society of their husbands and even of Diocletian himself. They succeed in securing their dynasties 
though they must go to extreme lengths to do so. Yet even in the initial success, they ultimately fail, as the succession is not long-lasting and is aborted by Brutus, just as, he, just as they sever the bloodlines of the nations their husbands ruled. The people of Albion are not viable ancestors for the people of Britain. They are giants. Not heroic figures, but monstrous ones. Regardless of the fact that the giants existed in the brute narrative before Albina and her sisters, and that their defeat is therefore a prerequisite for Britain's founding, the begetting of giants is symbolically important. Though the giant pro progeny, traditionally symbolic of the union between mortal and devil, can be seen as reflective of wickedness of both their transgressive mothers and their satanic fathers, their monstrosity can also be attributed to the fact that they were not begotten lawfully, but in response to the unquenchable lusts of their mothers. Thus, we can see another vis visible change between the patriarchal society of Syria and the matriarchal society of Albion, in how one goes about begetting the begetting of heirs and the securing of one's dynasty. Returning to, to the begetting of Albion, Albina and her sisters, the event has a very chaste portrayal. Diocletian spoused a gentle damsel that was wonder fair, that was his Eames uncle's daughter, Labana, and she loved him as reason would, so he begat upon her thirty-three daughters. The sisters are begotten from love, not one consumed with passion, but a love that is felt as reason would have been felt between a man and his wife. They were 33 sorters. You do wonder if there wasn't a little bit of lust in them. <laughs> Even in the more unorthodox manuscript tellings, the focus of the begetting of the sisters is on a loving union. Sal describes the length of their marriage as a reason for the begetting of so many offspring. So long they lived together. Meanwhile, Beinecke paints the picture thus. And they loved him so long to get him together as a reason would, and so long they lived affair till the king had get upon her 33 daughters. The begetting of the daughters is a result of the long and loving union of Diocletian and Labana, in contrast to the fleeting and lusty encounter Albina and her sisters experience. Moreover, the fact that the giants are begotten in unwedded lust is reflected in Brutus's own begetting, whereby his father, Sylvain, acquainted with a damsel and brought the damsel with child. This illegitimate conception results in Brutus killing both of his parents, his mother in childbirth and his father 15 years later in a hunting accident before being outcast from his homeland. Though things end happily for Brutus, the unlawful and lust-filled nature of his begetting brings about his parents' doom. Much like the lusty begetting of the giant ultimately thwarts the nation founded by their mothers. Though perhaps seeming inconsequential in the face of them being the devil's spawn, the idea of illegitimate children being the downfall of their parents is clearly a theme in the opening of the brute. Yet despite their bad beginnings, both Albina and her sisters and Brutus are given a second chance to redeem themselves by starting again in a new land. Both the sisters and Brutus undertake symbolic rebirths at sea, where born across the absolving waters by their respective gods, they are, or have the potential to be, reborn. Steeped in biblical imagery, the foundings of Albion and Britain carry with them the weight and potential of the rebirth of man after the flood. Both the sisters and Brutus have the opportunity to restart their dynasties that they assisted in destroying back in their homelands. 
Brutus's refounding of his Trojan dynasty is particularly permeated with biblical connotations. Having been promised the land of Britain by the goddess Diana, Brutus journeys towards and eventually founds Britain. This act is reminiscent of Abraham's journey to Canaan. Diana speaks to Brute. Brute, go ever forth thy way over the sea into France, toward the west, and there you shall find an isle that is called Albion. And that isle is bicompassed all with the sea, and no man may come therein, but it be by ships, and in that land where want be giants, but it is not so, but all wilderness. And that land to you is destined, and ordained for you and for your people. The fact that there are giants inhabiting the promised land links Brutus further still to the image of Abraham. Thus, Brutus provides a heritage that not only surpasses Albina's, but also Scotters, as he provides the British with an ancestral link to both the heroic Trojan tradition and also by echoing Abraham, not only to the Bible, but to God and his chosen people. Though undergoing a similar voyage at sea, their journey across the waves does not conjure the same biblical images for Albina and her sisters. Rather than being likened to leaders such as Abraham, the most prominent biblical likeness is to Eve. Like Eve, Albina and her sisters betray their husbands, are exiled from their homeland, consort with the devil, and give birth to monstrous children, if we are to describe Cain as monstrous. Though they may not be presented with quite the same biblical reverence as Brutus, they still make the same symbolic voyage across the sea and are given the same potential for rebirth, but they do not use it. Unlike Brutus, the sisters do not repent their wrongdoings and change, but they continue to transgress. Rather than reverting to more traditional female roles and behaviours, the sisters continue attempting to assume the role of ruler and conqueror in their new land, without being echoing the words of Brutus that Brutus will use when he later founds Britain, naming the land after her own name. But why do Albina and her sisters not utilise the second chance given to them? Why do they not amend their ways and be ruled and chastised as Diocletian wished and allow themselves rebirth? If they had, then perhaps their nation would have thrived and not have needed to be refound by Brutus. For truly, Brutus's rebirth is threefold. Firstly, a personal rebirth. Secondly, the rebirth of his ancestral bloodline, and thirdly, the rebirth of the land of Albion as Britain. By founding a civilization that re-establishes the structured patriarchal society as outlined by Diocletian, Brutus succeeds in re-establishing his ancestral line in this new land, building new Troy in memory of his ancestors and imbuing Britain with his treasured national identity. In contrast, by rejecting the societal moulds championed by their father, Albina founds a society that operates, or at least exists, entirely without men, masculine influence, or any reflection of their Syrian national identity. The society they found is therefore built upon nothing other than the idea of what it cannot be. It, is no, it has no national or political foundation, and thus cannot take root and flourish. Equally, Albina and her sisters attempt at leadership also fails because by the time they land upon Albion, they are no longer the princesses who were so fair that it was wanted to see, but their personal identity has been completely undermined and they no longer know who they are or how they should behave. 
By being married to lesser kings of other nations, the sisters not only lose their nationality, but also their socio-political identity as daughters of the most powerful king of the world. Their superior bloodline is no longer important. In seeking to regain these aspects of their identity by killing their husbands, the sisters go on to lose another aspect of their identity that is perhaps more important as far as the Albina prologue is concerned, their female identity. Forced to put aside their femininity in order to become dominant over their husbands, Albina and her sisters assume a masculinity that they can never truly own. This is highlighted through their use of the knife to cut in her husband's throats. A phallic symbol. The knife is not a weapon typically associated with female killers and presents the murder of their husbands as an overtly masculine act. Thus, by killing in this manner, the already sinful act of mariticide becomes a deeply gendered one, as they, cannot, as they not only emasculate their husbands, but can be seen as attempting to supplant their role as leader. Having given up their feminine identity and unable to fully assume a male one, the sisters are left not as transgressive women, but in the medieval mind as monstrous beings, unable to inhabit either a patriarchal society like Syria or a matriarchal society that the matriarchal society that Albion could have been, but never truly becomes. What then is Albion if not a matriarchal nation? It is a monstrous nation, founded by monsters and populated by monsters that Brutus must then conquer. Albina and her sister's inability to be reborn is therefore not due to stubbornness or pride or transgression, but because the only society left to them is the wild and animalistic kind that Albion becomes. It is a stagnant and uncivilised society, for they are not merely occupying the wilderness, but reduced to a quasi-animalistic state, they become a part of the primitive landscape. Their civilization cannot flourish. Albion stagnates and the nation must be reborn under Brutus's careful leadership. Change, therefore, can be seen as being integral to the evolution of a successful nation, as long as the nation maintains a sense of its national identity. Change is essential for rebirth and the cancelling out of the stagnant nation of Albion that never really was. It could be easy to say that the Albina prologue attaches to the brute warnings of transgressive women, and it would be easy to assume, considering the historical relevance of such sentiment, that that was the text's only function. Undoubtedly, Albina and her sisters are dangerous, but through a more comprehensive understanding of the text's relationship to change, rebirth and stagnancy, we can see that the even greater danger presented is the monstrous consequences that the loss of identity brings. By losing national, socio-political and gender identity, Albion and its founders stagnate in the new monstrous landscape that they inhabit. It is therefore for reasons of stagnancy and monstrousness rather than a chaotic change to a female or transgressive, to female or transgressive that ultimately causes Albion to fall and be reborn as Britain. The founding of Britain is then not an eradication of an undesirable civilization, but rather the restarting of a land's civilized and untapped potential, allowing it to become the nation that it always should have become, but could not as the monstrous and isolated Albion. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. 
If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 